The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Mount Calvary formed the center of the whole earth, for it is the meeting place where the redeemed, those separated in body by land and sea, daily assemble in spirit and greet each other with the kiss of love. But it is also the place where we can behold the dying Son of God and reckon the value which he placed upon our souls and can see the horror in which he held sin. We can discover something of the nature of sin by seeing its appalling fruit manifested in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach, which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we will be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled, The Horror of Sin. Sometimes a person who is having a heart attack may mistake his symptoms for something much less serious. He might think he is only having a bad case of heartburn when his condition is actually much more serious. Because of sin, the spiritual condition of mankind is much worse than we realize. How can we learn to see sin from God's perspective, in all its horror, and seek holiness in our lives? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is Romans chapter 6 and verse 2. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with the message entitled, The Horror of Sin. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank Thee for the river of grace which Thou hast brought to us from Christ, overflowing, superabounding, and which makes it possible for us to be delivered from the power of sin in the present, even as the Savior's death has delivered us from the penalty of sin in the past. Open our hearts in this hour and speak to us in power. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and for His sake. Amen. Our text today is in Romans 6, verse 2. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? We are not Christians because we lead a Christian life, but we lead a Christian life because we are Christians. This principle has been established in the early chapters of Romans, and so we now proceed to study the basis for Christian living. Justification has declared the believer to be righteous, though it has not made him righteous at all. The birth of a child does not make the child grow, but it places the child in an atmosphere where the child may now grow. God has looked upon us through Jesus Christ, has seen us as perfectly holy and righteous in Christ, made one with the Savior in every part of his work, 
so that we can be made one with him practically in every part of his resurrection life and power so that we can live as Christians. This union with Christ carries with it two distinct results. We were, all of us, dead in trespasses and sins, aliens from the life of God, strangers from the covenants of promise, without hope, without God, without strength. And we were in a position of enmity, both hating God and being hateful to him, as we have seen in Romans 1.30. All of this position of guilt and death was dealt with by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, and the full debt was paid by him. Now the debt having been paid, we are now accepted to God in Christ and declared to be righteous in his sight. But this declaration of our righteousness does not make us actively righteous. For that continuing righteousness, we must have the ever-flowing stream of the grace of God, which alone can make it possible for us to live in holiness before him. And thus, the second result of the work of Christ for us is our identification with him in his resurrection, so that we may have the ever-continuing flow of his power, which will enable us to live in newness of life. Our text is freighted with the overtones of horror. What shall we say in answer to our new knowledge that we have been justified by the work of Christ and thus freed forever from the penalty of sin's debt? Shall we take an easy attitude toward sin? How horrible a thought. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? We shall reserve for a later study the inner meaning of the fact of our union with Christ in his death and confine ourselves in this present study to the believer's awareness of the nature of sin and the consequent horror that he knows toward it. We shall see that the believer is made aware of the nature of sin, first, by learning the price that was paid to free us from sin's empire. Second, by witnessing the appalling fruit of sin as manifested in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And third, by glimpsing the great vista of holiness and righteousness that is opened up to us. And all of these three phases are the result of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ in resurrection life. And before we can know any of them, it's necessary for us to understand the deceitful nature of sin. The natural man, we read in Corinthians, receiveth not the things of the Spirit. And among the things of the Spirit to which the natural man is the most averse is God's estimate of sin. Why, it's even difficult for a Christian to come to an acceptance and an appreciation of God's estimate of sin. And this is why believers are told to exhort each other daily during this day of grace, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now, if sin can be deceitful to a believer in Christ, how much more is it deceitful to the one who does not have the new life that comes through faith in the Savior? If a man with 20-20 vision cannot discern the nature of an object at which he is gazing, how shall a man that is born blind comprehend the nature of that object? It is because of the deceitful nature of sin that the unregenerate world cannot comprehend it. Sin originated in Lucifer who became Satan, and in his fall his very nature became deceit. The Lord Jesus Christ said of the unbelievers of his day, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. 
When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. We can therefore understand that sin is deceitful because it proceeds from the devil, the father of lies. He manages his lies in the way that best suits his purpose. He even teaches in some quarters that he does not exist. And thus his dominion of sin can the more easily be extended and thus can sin be the more deceitful by claiming that it is unreality and error of mortal mind. There is one writer who has said under a definition of the devil that the devil is evil, a lie, error, neither corporeality nor mind, the opposite of truth, a belief in sin, sickness and death, in animal magnetism, hypnotism. Now what deceitfulness in Satan to have himself called a lie instead of a liar as Jesus Christ calls him. If Satan is a lie, then he is not he, but merely a thought of something that is not true and therefore that is not. But if Satan is a liar, as the Lord Jesus Christ said, then he is he. And while he is not corporeality, not a body, he is most certainly mind and is the source of deceit. Now, leaving the question of how naturally the unsaved are deceived, which is as comprehensible as the question of how easily a blind man could be deceived, let us turn to the manner in which sin can still deceive the believer in Christ. Those who are outside of Christ are perishing with every form of deceit and unrighteousness. And the reason given is because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. It would appear from certain usages of the word in the New Testament, the word deceit, that the only way in which the believer in Christ may be spiritually deceived is to have his mind turned away from the word of God. And this could be done by two things, false ideas and material things. False ideas. How can a man be deceived by them? Paul says to the Colossians in chapter 2 and verse 8, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. And this is the Holy Spirit speaking. This means that ideas can enter into a mind and set false patterns of thinking. That is why everything must be checked by the word of God. God has given us this book as the one perfect thing in the midst of this corrupt universe. And it can be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. False ideas can shade it, however, so that we see the mountains and the canyons along our way and are afraid to walk out boldly in the path of truth. And this is why Paul complimented the Berean Christians as being more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether the things that Paul had preached to them were so. And this is why Isaiah turned to the word of God as to the Supreme Court from which there was no appeal. When he confronted those who were seeking knowledge by consulting the dead, he issued the terrible injunction against consulting any medium and set forth that people should consult the word of God alone. We read in Isaiah 8, And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and that mutter. Should not any people seek unto its God? For should the living seek unto the dead? And after this solemn warning against ancient and modern spiritists, he says, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Or literally, there shall be no morning 
for them, no dawning. Further, if we look closely at the witness of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see that he measured all things by conformity to the word of God. And he himself is so identified with the Bible that Jesus is called the living word, even as the Bible is called the written word. If we do not check all of our thinking by this book, by this word, living and written, we can be spoiled by false philosophy and vain deceit. It is possible to have our mind turned away from the word of God also by material things. The Lord Jesus taught this truth very plainly in his parable of the sower. Some of the seed that was sown fell on stony places. And the Lord likened this to the heart of a man who received the truths of the Bible into a shallow heart that refused to make room for the scripture teachings. And so when tribulation or persecution came because of the word, as we read in Matthew 13, 21, such a man is offended. And the Lord then went on to describe the man who received the seed of the word among thorns. And of such, the Lord said, the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. This is true. Riches are deceitful and they do choke the word of God. It is harder to live spiritually in the midst of prosperity than it is in the midst of adversity. And thus we see that material things can deceive us as easily as false ideas. So we are living in a world of illusion. And if we are not to be deceived and hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, we must stay inside this book. We must live our whole lives within its vast horizon and must check every thought by its precepts. And now we return to the main theme of our discourse. Having noted the deceitful nature of sin, we turn to the word of God to learn the true nature of sin by learning the price that was paid to free us from sin's dominion, from sin's empire. This price was nothing more nor less than the death of the Son of God. If I am to know the true nature of sin, I must contemplate the passion and death of the Savior. Let us follow our Lord into that dark night when he walked into the garden of Gethsemane. The Passover feast had been kept and the bread had been broken and the wine poured out in the institution of that feast, which we still observe as a memorial of his death. The last echo of the song they had sung together had faded. Eight of the disciples were left at the gate of the garden and with the three witnesses of his sorrow, he went on into the innermost darkness of that place. What a scene is this? He asks the three disciples to accompany him and to watch with him, but they fall asleep. He prays to God and it seems as though the heavens do not answer. An angel comes to minister to him. And this seems almost a contradiction as though the mighty creator could be helped by one of his creatures. And even when the angel had strengthened him, it was only in order that Jesus might endure even greater sufferings for being in an agony. We read in Luke 22, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling to the ground. Shall I know that this was for me and then take a low view of sin? How horrible, perish the thought. When Mark tells us the story, he recounts that Jesus began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. Now, why should Jesus have been amazed? The word is one that is used of the fright 
which the disciples had when they found an angel in the tomb of the Savior at the time of the resurrection. When used of our Lord, it indicates to us that here in the garden, he saw approaching him the specter of the cross and all that would take place there. A sudden and horrifying alarm took hold of him. He was seeing the horror of being made sin for us. It was not that he was shrinking from death. It was not that he was frightened at the specter of Satan and his power. For the Lord Jesus had come to die. And he knew that through death he would destroy him that had the power of death. And that is the devil. But to have all the sin of the world touch him. To come upon him. To enter into the fabric of his being. This was a sight so appalling that his soul was exceeding sorrowful unto death. Humanly speaking, he would have been crushed under the thought of it and would have died at the moment. But the angel from God strengthened him and thus he was ready to go on through it all for us. But it is when we follow him from the garden and through his trials and come finally to his suffering upon the cross that we really comprehend his hatred of sin. Only a few steps upward, Krumacher describes it, and we reach the end of the dreadful pilgrimage. Where are we now? We are standing on the summit of Mount Calvary, Golgotha, horrifying name, the appellation of the most momentous and awful spot upon the whole earth. The ancients were in so far correct in their assertion that Mount Calvary formed the center of the whole earth, for it is the meeting place where the redeemed, those separated in body by land and sea, daily assemble in spirit and greet each other with the kiss of love. But it is also the place where we can behold the dying Son of God and reckon the value which he placed upon our souls and can see the horror in which he held sin. We can discover something of the nature of sin by seeing its appalling fruit manifested in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. These two truths must go together, and it will be impossible to disentangle them. The grandeur of what God did and the horror of what man did are all intertwined at Calvary. The infinite love and the infinite sin each serve to describe the infinity of the other. Listen to Krumacher again. Alas, alas, what is it that now takes place on that bloody hill? O oh, heart of stone in our breasts, why dost thou not break? Why, thou cold and obdurate rock, dost thou not dissolve in tears of blood? The executioners then take hold of the Lamb of God between them and begin their horrid occupation by tearing with rude hands the clothes from off his body. After having unclothed the Lord and by divine direction left him only his crown of thorns, they lay him down on the wood on which he is to bleed. And thus, without being aware of it, bring about the moment predicted in Psalm 22, where we hear the Messiah saying, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have encompassed me about. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. Oh, what a dying bed for the king of kings. My friends, as often as we repose upon the downy cushion of divine peace or blissfully assemble in social brotherly circles, singing hymns of hope, 
Let us not forget the cause of the happiness we enjoy is solely to be found in the fact that the Lord of glory once extended himself on the fatal tree for us. Oh, see him lie there, his holy arms forcibly stretched out upon the crossbeam, his feet laid upon each other and bound with cords. Thus Isaac once lay on the wood on Mount Moriah, but the voice that then called out of heaven saying, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, is silent at Calvary. The executioners seize the hammer and nails. But who can bear to look upon what further occurs? The horrible nails from the forge of hell, yet foreseen in the sanctuary of eternity, are placed on the hands and feet of the righteous Jesus, and the heavy strokes of the hammer fall. Dost thou hear the sound? They thunder on thy heart, testifying in horrible language of thy sin, and at the same time of the wrath of Almighty God. Oh, how many sleepers have awakened from their sleep of death under the echo of those strokes and have escaped from Satan's snare. Awake also thou that are asleep in sin and rouse thyself, likewise thou who art lulling thyself in carnal security. How many a proud and haughty heart has been broken into salutary repentance by these strokes. Oh, why dost not thy heart also break? For know that thou didst aid in swinging those hammers, and that the most crying and impious act which the world ever committed is charged to thine account. It is too much for our emotions to continue to the end. We hear Christ cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And we are tempted to cry out in the words of the psalmist, Is his mercy clean gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? And then the Spirit teaches us that the Lord God so hated sin that he turned away from his beloved Son when he was made sin for us. Then we begin to learn the real nature of sin. Then we begin to see whose sin it was that nailed him there. Then we begin to realize the depths of that love which was willing to suffer such a death for us. Then we can see the dividing line between sin and holiness, and we can desire forevermore that we should live unto the praise of him who suffered thus for us. And it is through the sight of his death for us and the horror of the sin that placed him there that we can catch the first glimpse of the righteousness and holiness with which he desires to clothe us. Then we can see the path of righteousness which he has marked out for us. Only in his light can we see light. Then it is that our hearts would cut loose from every path to sin then it is that we would stand with him as his redeemed own and learn to walk worthily of the calling wherewith we have been called. It is from the Mount Calvary that we can view the promised land even as Moses saw the land from Nebo. And when once we have caught the glimpse of the land of peace, the land that flows with milk and honey, we can never be content to wander again in the wilderness. How shall we walk in the desert who have learned to drink at the eternal springs. 
How shall we feed on brambles who have once followed the shepherd past Calvary to the place of green pastures and still waters? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What a horrible thought. How shall we who have died to sin live any longer therein? No, the love of Christ constraineth us. And we pray thee, our God, that that constraining love shall be upon us today, that thou shalt take thy words to the heart of being, that afresh we may surrender ourselves to thee for crucifixion death, and that thou to thine honor and glory shall take our praise. Now give restlessness to any who are yet lost, and upon all thy redeemed own may thy grace, thy mercy, and thy peace abide. And unto thee be all the glory now till the Lord Jesus come again and forever. Amen. God hates sin so much that he poured out his wrath on his beloved son to save us from its deadly effects. We should detest our sin and look to Christ for the power to live godly lives. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, The Horror of Sin. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse anytime, anywhere around the globe via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, The Horror of Sin, or simply request message number R6-4. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, Your Right to Heaven. Many people believe they have a right to go to heaven based on their good works or moral character. But the Bible teaches us that we are all sinners and deserve eternal condemnation. This free booklet sets forth the gospel declaration that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose again to give eternal life to all who trust in Him. You do have a right to heaven based on the person of Jesus Christ and His finished work of salvation. Ask for your free copy of Your Right to Heaven when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from the broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Join us again next time 
for a more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.